it does seem like George Floyd's killing before our eyes uh, really just stripped bare any illusions that many people had. You want to know what my wife and I got in an argument about the other day? I had this older car, had to get a new car, and I was like, you know what? Just, we should tint the windows. Just a really, really light tint. And my wife's like, no, we shouldn't. Not right now. It doesn't matter what I say on TV or how much notoriety I get for what I say. At the end of the day, like I've been pulled over multiple times in my life for driving a suspicious vehicle. A suspicious vehicle. And they've, they've been nice vehicles, but suspicious. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well. It's been a really hard time throughout the country, and we're going to be talking to someone now who will, I think, have a lot of uh, insight to share. He's ESPN broadcast commentator and former NBA player, former college basketball legend. I guess he's still a legend. Uh, Jay Williams. Jay, how are you, brother? I'm good, man. How about yourself? Uh, doing well. Um, the family's good. So you were in Brooklyn until quite recently. Is that right? Yeah. You know, um, a lot of people decided to get out of the city. Uh, a lot of people who are you know, very privileged had the monetary value to get out of the city. My wife and I just chose to stay. Um, we we're there for, you know, throughout this entire pandemic, which is a little bit, uh, it's definitely different. Uh, being stuck in New York City with the amount of anxiety that is able to be pressed upon you every single day, just trying to get outside for a breath of fresh air. And then uh, we had one of our balcony windows um, that literally just shattered and it came down. And uh, we got pretty scared because there was no rock or anything that came through it. We uh, called the cops. We thought uh, they thought it could potentially have been a BB gum. We weren't sure. That's, that's then, terrifying. Uh, so, you, you have a baby daughter in the house, yeah. right? Yeah, we have a you know 19 month old, and then all the protests and a lot of the uh, some of the rioting began, and our building got a little bit messed up. So it just um, you know it became one of those scenarios where you know about this, Andrew. Like I had to protect my family, so we partnered up with another couple and we came up to Maine for a couple of weeks and are just uh, staying here and watching from afar, and uh, you know waiting for things to deescalate. Uh, well, I'm I'm glad that you and your family are safe. Everyone's okay. Everybody's good, man. We're very thankful that everybody's good. I I feel like overall our country is moving in a in a interesting positive direction. Seeing so many people come together, um, it's been it's been really moving, man. Um, it's just been innately different to be a, a part of something like this. I don't know if if you feel the same way. It's just um, it's so cool to so. Granted, there's it's complex because we're still in the midst of a pandemic, and that's a whole other issue. Um, but it is good to see us be united uh, to a degree. Uh, I, I feel the same way. I feel like this is uh, unprecedented in my lifetime, where so many people have come together. And there's something both tragic and beautiful about uh, the outpouring of uh, passion and grief and uh, emotion that... I mean, you, you saw up close, uh, since it sounds like you were literally um, within steps or a stone's throw away from some of these protests uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah, it, it's, it was different. Uh, the vibe was different. Um, 
you know, at that time, obviously, there's a lot of pent up frustration and anger. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, coming out of that in a lot more of a peaceful way, but it's, um, it's powerful. And I've had so many conversations, Andrew, and I, I think that the fact that this came together, I've had a lot of raw conversations with people and you kind of are able to dive right into people being real instead of a lot of the political or social conjecture that you get with certain answers, um, where people haven't been as real with themselves. It's been a lot of dancing before, you know, when, and now we get a chance to be raw and a little bit unfiltered. It feels rewarding that, to a degree. That's so powerful. Like it, it, it does seem like George Floyd's killing before our eyes uh, really just stripped bare any illusions that many people had. Like, you know, like there are people who I think might've been resistant to the reality of police brutality, uh, maybe, you know, literally like four weeks ago that now are completely on board with the fact that this is like a moral stain and a like a scourge that's been killing people of color uh, for generations. Uh, and when I talk to people who are black men, frankly, like uh, most of them have, have told me that that they uh, were like hit like a, a hammer by the, the George Floyd video where, where you know, like they um, felt uh, anger, grief, uh, fear, uh, you know, like, and, and it, they said that it was like familiar emotions, but amplified uh, past anything that they'd experienced before. It, uh, it really has, man. It's so funny. I've been calling you AY for a really long time. I give people nicknames. I've been calling you AY. I, I don't want to be like, if that's not a nickname no, a, you go a, by, a, but a, I just naturally welcome, man. Okay. It works for me. That's actually much better okay. than the shit I got called as a kid. So like, like, I would have welcomed <laughs> AY uh, you know, as like the lone well, Asian like, kid I, in my, uh, my town. That would have made but me But that's cool. why I wanted to talk to you though. That's why I wanted to talk to you, AY, right? Like it's, you, you being the ethnicity that you are running for president, me being, you know, I, I know you felt this. I'm curious to get your opinion on this. And I know you have questions for me and I want to ask you questions, but it's, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable speaking on so many things because I was a black man on TV and a lot of bosses that we had, it's not as diverse. It, it's, um, and you almost feel to a degree that if you were to take a step outside the norm of how society deems you need to communicate things, right, um, it stops your ascension. And when you're in the midst of this reality about I have a wife, I have a kid, I have a mother that has gone through two kidney transplants, um, the responsibility that comes along with the work that I have to do, it's a challenging situation to be on. And you know, how did you, how did you deal with that? Obviously, because you're catering to all people, but still at the same time, <laughs> you're one of the first to do this from your position. How how did you handle that? Thank you for uh, asking, Jay. Uh, I had a similar arc to what you're describing, really, uh, over the year, like the two years I ran, where you show up. Um, and then you're trying to ascend. Uh, and in my case, it was like, well, I need to try and get noticed. Um, but there there was like this sense of seriousness I felt like I had to carry with me all the time because uh, otherwise people would not take me very seriously. And so like I felt like I was kind of playing a role 
uh, and and then there was a concern that if I went like off script, that things were going to go poorly for me and my campaign. That like the press was going to look for any reason to just fucking ignore me or whatnot. And so it was like, well, like uh, let's not give them those reasons. Um, exactly. Uh, and and then which is kind of bullshit within itself, you know. But it is what it is. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm so grateful to independent voices who you know, like mainly podcasters or. Uh, people that just use their own judgment who said, hey, this Andrew Yang person has some really interesting ideas. And I did not feel that to the same extent. I think that's one reason why you and I wanted to talk is that, you know, if you have an hour to sit and talk to someone like a human being, it's just a very, very different format than if it's like you have a five minute cable news segment. I'm going to ask you four questions. Half of them are going to be antagonistic. You know, like you just feel like you're just going to be like, (laughs) like dodging, like, you know, uh, like, like bricks thrown at you, you know, figurative bricks, obviously. Uh, so, uh, so it was difficult. And, and the tough part, Jay, was that like, I found that um, if I didn't embrace my humanity on the trail in some ways, then like we were never going to have a prayer. And so I needed to actually act like myself. And it was a very hard thing to act like myself. I mean, it probably seemed like that was the natural thing for me to do from afar. Um, but it was actually very, very difficult. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So, you know, I've gone through this a lot on my end. You know, and obviously we're speaking in two, three minute sound bites. So, you know, the sports world, which I think is a microcosm of, of you know, your your arena uh, to a degree with the way media works you know it's interesting so we'll have like morning meetings and you know to give you an analogy you'll have a guy you know like Jamal Murray who plays for Denver he might have had a triple double that night and Denver maybe plays the the Clippers 
uh, and Kawhi maybe is doing low management and Paul George is out so those guys don't play, right? And you're, you're sitting there saying, wow, okay, Jamal Murray just had a triple-double. That's incredible. Like he's done something that not a lot of people have been able to do in the NBA. But LeBron James and the Lakers will be playing somebody and say it's a, a lower team, like a, a Memphis, you know, or Memphis, for example, like a Phoenix who's not in the playoffs, but they are now. And <laughs> I know the next day we're leading with LeBron James. Like we are leading with LeBron James, regardless of how crazy Jamal Murray went off, he could have scored 70. Like we are going to lead with LeBron James. And I feel like a lot of times I would watch a lot of these debates that you were in and I, I would hear your points. I would write them down I'm like, man, that's really this somewhat genius. Okay. I, I like the way he's thinking. And the next day, sure enough, it's like these political agendas were out there knowing how these meetings go leading with other people. I'm like, oh, this is the same thing as sports. This is interesting. Well, you and I have both been in the media machine. Like you see how those meetings go and then what stories get produced. Uh, and, you know, I certainly feel like my campaign uh, definitely demonstrated that, you know, like some of the stories had a pre-written agenda <laughs> before hmm. the, the actual event. Um, and the fact that it happens in sports is probably not surprising to, to fans and, and people who watch it every day. Like I do, people, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Um, and you know when when I talk to you and other um, other black athletes, like the one of the things that like I I, I sensed um, is this anguish that like it doesn't matter how uh, much you ascend, how you know wealthy or um, successful you are, that at the end of the day, like when you're driving your car and you're a person of color, like the police officer doesn't know who you are. Um, and like, like there, there's a sense that you're still on guard. You want to know what my wife and I got in an argument about the other day? Uh, so I was talking to one of my really good friends. His name is Matt Clarberg. And I was like, you know, okay. Like I had this older car, had to get a new car. And I was like, you know what? Just, we should tint the windows. It's a really, really light tint. And my wife's like, no, we shouldn't. Not right now. And my wife's Lebanese and Italian. Okay. So I'm like, no. It's okay. Like it'll be, it'll be fine. She's like, no, I just, I don't feel comfortable with you doing that. And like, those are the type of conversations that I end up having. That it doesn't matter how successful I get. It doesn't matter what I say on TV or how much notoriety I get for what I say. At the end of the day, like I've been pulled over multiple times in my life for driving a suspicious vehicle, a suspicious vehicle. And they've, they've been nice vehicles, but suspicious. And that's led to, I mean, things that my dad and I have talked about, Andrew, is, you know, when you get pulled over, you keep both your hands on the wheel. You do not move. You try to use tonality that de-escalates situations, regardless of how the cop might try to escalate it or ask you questions or try to catch you out there. And when you go to your glove compartment to get your insurance or your registration, you keep one hand on the wheel and you, you, it's called a guide hand. You guide the cop with you as you're maintaining eye contact with him about where your hand is going. And I can't tell you how many times this happened to me. And I've been pulled over with other friends. And I've seen some of my other friends who are Caucasian, you know, throw a hissy fit. And the cop is trying to call. And I'm like, wow, I, I, I don't have that same luxury. Even if I did, the anxiety I would have, because I know that's not the norm, just gives it such a different feel all the time all the time yeah that's something that most of us can't relate to or people that that didn't 
grow up black in this country, uh, you know, and have that kind of experience, uh, certainly, you know, like this time is highlighted for us all just how um, completely and uh, destructively racist a lot of police behavior is. Um, you know, when I started digging into the facts around this, and I knew a lot from my time in the, on the campaign trail, uh, but the magnitude of the problem is uh, is highlighted by the fact that we don't even know precisely how big the problem is. It's like like there have been multiple laws that were passed saying, hey, we should try and document how many people die as a result of encounters with police or in police custody. And we still don't actually get that information from police departments around the country. We like there were journalists who compiled it locally. Uh, and so to, to me, most Americans cannot relate to that. But if you're a person of color growing up in this country, it's just a reality that you've lived with for your entire life. Yeah, so I, I even know, I'm with you, it, it has been a reality. So I look at the situation in Minnesota and I'm like, you know, is, is that what we should require our police force to do? Like, you know, it, be dismantled? and then built from the floor up. But then, you know, who's still policing the neighborhoods while you're dismantling the police force? I, and I've heard a lot of people talk about, we need to defund the police. Is, is that the answer? How would, you, how would you go about it? Because obviously you have way more experience in this than I do. Well, defund the police is uh, just the wrong term for what people are arguing. Um, people are arguing for uh, scaling up resources to communities around healthcare and education and mental health resources and uh, infrastructure and community services and scale down the level of uh, of policing. And Minneapolis's step to defund, well, what they did was, it looks like they're going to disband the police department, which is an incredibly dramatic step. It happens almost never hmm. in the United States. But it did happen to a town that you probably know relatively well. It happened in Camden, New Jersey, uh, because wow. the Camden Police Department was so corrupt that they got there and eventually said there is no saving this department like there's no turning this thing around like, like there was so much uh so much corruption going on that in, like if i told you like the stories from the news accounts that where they were literally just like hmm. passing the drugs around and like showing like every everyone knew what was going on um and so they had to disband that police department and then when they reconstituted it they hired back some of the same police officers but they had a completely different approach to policing where the policemen volunteered in communities they had barbecues uh if you're a new police officer in that department you have to knock on every door of the places you're patrolling and just introduce yourself and say hi say hey i'm the police officer. actually actually know your neighbor yes a, it'd be like i am the police concept. officer that will be patrolling in this uh in this area um, so they've done very dramatic things. Now, Camden was a, an unusual example, but it seems like Minneapolis is trying to do something similar. Uh, and you no, know, like the, the fact that they did this to me um, is a major step. Um, and other communities are going to look at this and say, wait, like that's actually even conceivable because most of us can't imagine a police department being disbanded. But it has happened multiple times in the U.S., so like, I don't even know, all right, if that's the case, but maybe they are being a little bit dramatic, then what's an immediate solution? Like, obviously, I, you know, I see a lot of activation around uh, local legislation where people are like, you know, who's your district attorney? Uh, who's your mayor? What are some of the policies they put in place? Obviously, do more research on that. 
Is that the immediate answer to go more grassroots and try to have more people that look and sound like minorities in government positions? Because I don't know if that's always the answer either, because I know a lot of people that are corrupted by these same situations. So what would you advise people to do currently? Now, this was Cornell West right after uh, the uh, the riot, the protest began, um, where he said, look, we've tried black faces in high places and it has not actually changed uh, like like what's happening on the streets. And so there, there are a number of big changes that are being proposed that would move in the right direction. So number one is use of force rules saying, look, no chokeholds, de-escalate, uh, like uh, use of force, avo- exhaust every other alternative, uh, just change the rules and standards. And that apparently would have a very dramatic effect on fatality rates. Uh, having greater federal oversight because the local district attorney is not going to want to pick a fight with the local police officers. Like the local police officers are some of the most powerful uh, people in the community, like sometimes the most powerful people. And so the, so you need some kind of Department of Justice oversight that has made a difference uh, in the past. Having people that you can call that are not police officers is actually very helpful. Um, one out of every four people that get shot by a police officer is mentally ill. And if you can imagine a police officer showing up and saying, well, you're not listening to my commands, like halt or I'll shoot. And then like something tragic happens. Instead, you send in a crisis worker and a mental health worker and a medic um, for those situations who don't have guns, obviously. Uh, so, so that would be a change. The toughest change that I think is going to be imperative is that there are these police union rules that make it so that a lot of police aren't really accountable when they um, do something wrong. And uh, police unions are very, very powerful politically and otherwise, monetarily. Uh, And so changing those rules is going to be a very, very difficult process. But I think that's an enormous help. Um, right now, police departments get hundreds of millions of dollars worth of military gear from the Department of Defense at uh, no charge. And studies have shown that if you get those weapons, you use them occasionally. There's actually a provision in the law that says if you don't use it uh, in the course of a year, you have to give it back. So if you get a tank and grenade launchers, you literally are like, all right, I guess I have this stuff. And so every once in a while, you end up using it. Um, in communities in a way that leads to loss of life. So these are some of the things that that people are trying to take aim at. The biggest one is just tracking bad cops, because right now, if you have a bad cop, they can literally quit, go two counties over and then just get rehired. Um, And there's actually no way of tracking uh, that cop's history or behavior. So how is that possible, though? How is there no way of tracking it? Well, there's no national database of of like, uh, so if I'm a police officer, I mean, in theory, you'd call the old department and be like, hey, like, you know, like, why is this guy not with you? Uh, But but there there is no database. There's no tracking. And a lot of the time, Jay, like these complaints because of union rules are confidential. And so. Wow. So Derek Chauvin, the guy who um, killed George Floyd, had 18 complaints against him. Uh, And if you look at that and say like shit that's like a ton of complaints like this guy's a real history he was like present for the deaths of multiple um suspects over time um and these are the kinds of things that generally speaking no action is being taken on right now uh, around the country for uh, some of these reasons so so these are some of the policies that people are trying to legislate for 
um, or agitate for new legislation. The defund the police movement is itself, you know, like, should we be investing more in communities uh, uh, of color in particular? 100% yes. Are we overspending on police? Objectively, in my opinion, yes. Um, but the, the defund the police statement is not helpful because it literally sounds like you want to zero out like police departments, which uh, is, is not actually the goal. Okay, so come with me here. So if you're saying that defunding the police department is not the right direction, you, you still want to do things within the in the communities. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot about this act HR 40. I don't know if you heard about that, uh, where it talks about reparation. And it's been interesting to me, a why to to read up a lot about Germany, who's become one of the most progressive countries there is in the world, uh, by the way. And, you know, when you see signs in Berlin that remind you of the Holocaust and, and talk about it and the fact that they've been paying reparation for close to 100 years to the Jewish community. And, you know, it, it used to seem like such a lofty goal to me, such a lofty thing. Um, and then recognizing that other countries have been doing it. Why is that not something that you think we're not hearing as much about? Is that just because we can't? Is that a topic that? people just don't want to, I don't even know why they wouldn't talk about this because I, I I rarely hear it and then it loses steam. HR uh, 40 is a great effort in Congress to try and examine what the heck reparations would look like in practice. Uh, and I've read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and other people who argue really compellingly that reparations uh, is something that's owed to descendants of slaves in the U.S. And, you know, you can't uh, you can't argue with the fact that this country was built on the backs of slaves. Um, so the fact that other countries have done it is awesome. And the fact the United States is not at this point really having a, a conversation about that is something that I hope will change over time. Uh, to me, one of the goals that has to be to try to eradicate poverty right now uh, for everyone. And then I think we can look at reparations very seriously. Um, to, to me, reparations is more possible in a country where people feel like their needs are being met. Do you think that your strategy currently for the time that we're in would have been beneficial? How would that have worked? Oh, uh, you know, people say to me all the time, Jay, that it's like if, if all of this shit had hit the fan, you know, like 10 weeks earlier, I'd be the front runner today. I mean, that, that, that's something yes, that, you would be. Yes, you would be. That, that I hear a lot of. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's heartbreaking that we're in this situation um, with like a crisis on top of a crisis. Uh, and certainly like you, like I just want to do everything I can to help um, right now. But I, I will say that millions of Americans got $1,200 stimulus checks uh, from the government and they were like, wait a minute, we can do that. Like, and they, they liked getting the stimulus checks It helped them breathe easier and made them less stressed out. Uh, and so there are a lot of people joining the Yang Gang all the time, honestly, like, uh, you know, if you look at our mailing list and like supporter base and the rest of it, it's growing all the time because a lot of people are like, wait a minute, like that guy actually made a lot of sense. And uh, a lot of the stuff he described is coming to pass, unfortunately, faster than even I'd imagine. It's uh, it, it's interesting. Even you know, being on air every day, I I took about four or five days off. Um, obviously, got my family out of town when all the protests started to happen in the riot, um, and got up here and got settled. But it it was interesting. There was such this uh, rush I felt 
to hurry up and get back on air. And, you know, everybody saying, you know, Jay, we want you on air. Your voice is important. And I said, I understand that. But, you know, there's a lot of weight that comes along with with the position that I'm in. And I want to thoroughly think through what it is I want to say and what the impact of what I'm going to say is going to have. And I actually want there to be actionable items that when I do go on air, I'm just not pontificating about how frustrated I am or how pissed off I am. I've been that way for a long time. I've been that way since watching my dad deal with cops. And, you know, then you combine that with the pandemic. It's, um, you know, and it, it was it was challenging for me because as a, as a black man, I, I'm supposed to do that. That is my that is my role. That is my responsibility. And trying to work with people on a day to day basis to help me think through what it is I want to say and how I want to say it. You know, collection of data. I know who do you use for stuff like that, Andrew? Obviously, I mean, you can't come up with all this stuff on your own. Obviously, you got your team, but who are some of the people that you talk to that you bounce ideas off of that you think are your your trusted, you know, internal circle? One thing that's fun about being me now, Jay, and this applies for to you uh, just as much, is that just about anyone will talk to you. <laughs> so, so in your in your case, like uh, you know, like if you reach out to. Uh, campaign zero or police equity or like the frankly these like black activists who've been trying to figure out okay how the heck do we make the police less lethal for people of color like the 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 evidence and research and the policies like uh, i just listed to you they're not mine they're from campaign zero these uh black activists uh deray mckesson and uh, samuel um I'm going to mangle Sam's last name, um, but, but, but like there, it's okay. I'll look it up. Campaign yeah, zero. Yeah, I got no, it. man, I'll send you the, the links in the info. Um, but it, it's tremendous because they've done the work and then I, you know, then I kick the tires on the work they've done and look at it and say, well, one, the data is there Two, It's common sense. Uh, you know, and, and so, so that, that is the fun part of being us, Jay is like, you know, we, we can equip ourselves pretty quick, um, because everyone wants to tell us what they've been working on. And then you and I have the benefit where we can spread that message. Yeah, I think that's the point, you know, and it's a I try to tell people we were on air the other day and I was like, hey, look, these next four and a half months, just go ahead and buckle up, Andrew, like buckle up, brother. Like it's going to be a ride It's on the sports side. I can talk about this is that, you know, Having the NBA playoffs that are about to happen in that condensed time period starting in July, ending in October, having MLB that's coming into its own if they're able to get through it. Uh, athletes are going to have the biggest state, the biggest stage they've ever had in their entire lives. And you can bet your tail on it that guys are going to be speaking out. Now, having a commander in chief that likes to engage in the sports arena. And I've had this issue at ESPN. It was tough. I mean, he, Look, people are going to talk about Jamel Hill, Michael Smith, two people that got let go by ESPN for speaking out their mind against him. And everybody got put in this really weird situation about, you know, we are for sports. We're not for politics. But then you're like, how do you navigate? You know, he keeps injecting himself into these conversations and using things to politicize and weaponize. And this is going to be a fight. People, you know, fans are about to see a fight for the next four and a half months on a, on a pretty massive stage. It's going to be crazy to watch. You know, one, one thing I know you're outspoken about, which I am 100% with you on, is uh, 
that college athletes need to get compensated for the revenues and the talents they're bringing in. And to me, there's always been a racial component to this because you have D1 football players and basketball players, often people of color, uh, who are not getting paid. They're getting these scholarships. And then you have these coaches and athletic directors often commanding seven-figure salaries, uh, often not people of color. Uh, and and then you have these institutions that are benefiting to the tune of tens of millions of dollars uh, a year, broadcast contracts that are worth hundreds of millions. Uh, and to me, there was always like this, it was like an uh, oppression, not just of uh, young people, but also a people of color who are generating the value, risking life and limb, um, you know, and then being told it's like, hey, uh, you're getting this great education out of it. So just be grateful. Shut up. Um, you can't like if you if you took money from anyone, then we're somehow going to take away your eligibility and your ability to play because you have like poked a hole in this bullshit fiction that like you're all amateurs <laughs> and like like we're all amateurs too. like your coaches are doing it for the love of the game and the like freaking four million dollars a year they get paid. Um, so <laughs> like this to me <laughs> has always been like the biggest sack of bullshit that you can see in like the, the you know, institutional frameworks where it's like, wait a minute, like how much did Zion just make for? <laughs> <laughs> for his school or like the broadcast networks and like how much did he get i mean you know like i imagine zion um was was okay but uh you know i mean like it but it, it the thing that worries me really is like that person who's not a household name who's not going to make the league who's like you know there um and uh like is going to have a hard time um in like their post athletic career um after school um, who should have been compensated for the value they were adding when they were in school. Man, you know, we, we, we've been talking about this forever, and I would hear people combat uh, that same, you know, thought that you had with, well, you know, I'm still paying back my student loans. And I would say, I understand the value of education. And I, I you know, look, that's a whole other different conversation about education, and we can get into that in a little bit. But uh, I'm like, I understand what the the uh, issues are around that and how challenging that might be. But I also understand that, you know, I brought in millions of dollars of revenue million and, and you know, cable companies is just not hundreds of millions. It's in, it's billions. I mean, it's billions It's 10 and a half billion dollars in which the NCAA tournament got sold for. And you, you just, you, you see guys like Zion Williamson should be getting a residual check every, every other week uh, just for the notoriety that he could bring to the table. And, so for me personally, and the tonality of it too, AY, it's like predominantly these kids in both these footballs that generate enough money for to subsidize all the other sports, they're African-American. So then when you're able to say, okay, the university, when there's an issue, you uh, you have the, the athletic director that speaks up about the issue for the university. When the coach has an issue, either the coach can speak out or the coach's agent can speak out. When the league has an issue, the commissioner of the league can speak out. Well, when a player has an issue, who's speaking out on the player's behalf? Nobody. And oftentimes the player doesn't say anything because the player wants to be able to get the leeway to go to another university for a second try and doesn't want to have that university taint his you know, resume on who he is as a person. So the fact that you have all these individuals that have no representation in the marketplace, but yet it's called amateurism 
And people don't even know where amateurism came from. I mean, it came from the 50s with the first director of the NCAA, Walter Byers. There was a player who was running a slant route for a smaller school, uh, got hit running a slant route, catching the ball, and got hit uh, helmet on helmet, passed away. The His wife at the time tried to sue the school for workers' comp. They found a loophole around workers' comp because he was not an employee. He was deemed an amateur. So... You know, when you understand where this terminology came from and then you see how much it's evolved and the fact that now we're finally on the, you know, verge of getting name, image and likeness and how that's a fight is beyond me. Yeah, it's literally. Fight. It's like, like people are like paying for, like, you know, for the video game to be able to play you, uh, you know, like the jerseys, the autographs and everything else. You can't even have that like that to me was um the like the most ridiculous stance i'm glad that's changing but you know that but that's not where all the money is really i mean the, the money is hovering around in these broadcast Agreed. deals well i mean what a what a crazy concept right rev share i mean what, what a crazy concept i mean that's what the nba does that's what nfl does that's what mls does uh that's what mlb does so wh- why is the ncaa any different i mean it, even if you want to put that money andrew in escrow and even if you were to break it down and say, okay, we're going to put a small percentage of this money for the profit that your own athletic um, department for basketball generates, we're going to, you know, we still have to subsidize other sports. Uh, I know a lot of schools are breaking even, but a lot of schools are not who yep. are way more profitable and in the public eye a ton. So even if we were to give you off a sliver of that, a smaller percentage and say, let's keep this in escrow. And if you graduate maintaining a certain GPA by this new curriculum that we're going to establish, that's actually going to be conducive to you being successful once you graduate from here, other than you just taking lame courses because basketball is your priority yes. or your sport is your priority because you can't major in what you actually want to major in. Even though we're going to call you a student athlete, the reality is you're an athlete student. So, but we can't even come to an agreement on that. Like, yeah, it, that, that would be um, tremendous. If you had like an escrow account where uh, people were getting some of the revenue down the road, even like you said, like that would be an amazing for so many athletes and they deserve it. I mean, it was their freaking uh, talent, energy and dedication with that you, man. generated the value that right now the schools are all uh, are benefiting from. Yeah. So, I mean, that's it, it's we're we're on that trajectory. It's going to be even more interesting, you know because this is already happening on the high school level. You you know, with all these different social media platforms, you have kids now who are starting to think about themselves as businesses at a lot earlier of a stage. If you see kids on YouTube who are 10, 11 years old who are making millions of dollars based upon how many views they get and how YouTube is taking that, or, that metrics, right? Yeah, how, or these top the players that are now skipping college. They're just going straight to the G there League and they're like, wait a minute, I can make a quarter mil plus maybe some uh, sponsorship and endorsement can build my brand and the rest of it. Like, you know, they don't need to put up with the NCAA's bullshit anymore. Like it's not working. I'm with you, man. And so it's going to get, it's going to get even more progressive because there's no other choice. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes. 
and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. What's next for you? Like, what what are what are some of Andrew Yang's actionable items in the next couple of years? What things would you like to achieve? I want to achieve so much, Jay, because we're we're falling apart. And one of the things that this actually ties us back to what you were just saying. Um, we're in like the age of institutional failure. Uh, you know, if like you look up and you see an institution, it is not doing very well right now. And our trust in institutions is also collapsing. It's like you rewind a couple generations ago, everyone thought, might have thought like, hey, the NCAA is like a-okay. And then now we're like, what the hell? Like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, the police with the killing of George Floyd, um, our government, the media, uh, you name it. At this point, we're like questioning everything. And with good reason. Um, and if you are an athlete at a college, uh, you know, no one stands up for you. No one represents you. And you know, if you come out and talk about certain things, you're going to be labeled what? A distraction, like not a team mm-hmm. player, like a bad apple. You're like not part of the team, you know, and, and, and that, uh, that pressure um, extends into the corporate realm too. Like for many, many folks who are like, you know, representing different backgrounds in these organizations, it's like, well, you know, it's like you want to be you, but like you you don't want to undermine whatever the heck like the like the corporate picture is like if you are a certain Hmm. certain firm. And let's say you have major advertisers who like, you know, throw off like, uh, like hundreds of millions of dollars. Like when Bill Simmons was like criticizing the NFL and literally like ESPN and NFL were like hand in glove. And then, you know, like, 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 just like, don't bite the hand that feeds you. And, And so like, there's all of this, like, oh shit, the one, like, who's the hand can I not bite? Like what's going on? Um, but but like the, these things that would have happened behind closed doors a generation ago, now we can all see. Like we can all see glimpses of or, or clearly because of technology and social media. Uh, one thing I said before is that like the illusions are dying. The question is what takes their place? Um, and can we stand the truth when it's shown to us? Uh, so for, for me over the next couple of years, I just want to try and get us through this period, Jay, because it's a disastrous time for so many Americans right now. It's so bad. You know, you're, you're looking at 40 million jobs lost that we know of, uh, at least 40% of which are not going to come back. So you're looking at 16 million jobs gone for good. That's two times the Great Recession. Uh, we're looking at depression era levels of unemployment. Um, and uh, the vast majority of Americans support cash relief uh, right now. Hmm. Um, and Congress is not passing it. Uh, if you look at the 3 trillion or so that's already been spent on stimulus, maybe 10% of it was in the form of cash to people. 
ninety uh, percent of it went to bailout, you know, uh, what have you, like the um, airlines or uh, various big companies, banks, uh, whatever. You know, it's like money's just getting plowed through these pipes, and uh, a lot of it's not reaching people. You know, it's like who if you don't have yeah, a private we, banker, we saw to that we small we saw that with these small business loans that were supposed to go out towards small businesses that uh, went to a lot bigger small businesses and didn't go to the actual small businesses. Yeah. And then just ran out and someone said something, um, you know, I was talking to Mark Cuban about this, um, but he, he said like, why do you even have a limit on this fund? It's like, if, if you literally are just trying to s- support small businesses, like if a small business qualifies, like just give them the money, like, w- like what's the point of having a pool that gets exhausted and gets exhausted by like the Shake Shacks of the world and shit, you know? I mean, nothing against Shake Shack. <laughs> exactly. I lo- you know, I love Shake Shack, but you know what I mean? I love it's like, Shake Shack. <laughs> I'm with like you. The, like the big company that, you know, doesn't need it. And and I did not fault the big companies who applied and got the money because the, the pot's there for you. You qualify. You've got a banker you can call up. Like you get the money. You know, it's like, it's not the big company's fault for taking advantage of a program that's been put out there for them. Um, it's the fault of our government for designing a program really poorly and and seeing to it that like the biggest get to feed first. Man, every time I hear you talk, you just makes too much sense. Like you make too much sense. So like, did you, did you, how did you deal with, um, I'm sure there were some racial things thrown at you throughout the course of your campaign. Um, yeah, how'd you, you deal know, with that stuff? I mean, Did there, that happen? There, there, there was, but um, I, I will say, Jay, when I was out campaigning around the country, I did not get much of that. Um, like most Americans were very open-minded to, to me, certainly to my face. Like, I don't know what happened, like, you know, as soon as I leave, but like, like when, when I was there, there was like a real, um, uh, warmth and openness to, to many of the gatherings, uh, to the extent that I was frustrated with my treatment, it really was in the media. And I, I think that like that was tied to my race, honestly, like, like that mm. there was like this, uh, um, invisibility that I was like, what the fuck I'm standing right here. And like, it, it, would, it, would, like, like it would happen to me frequently enough where I was like, well, this is certainly not just me imagining shit. And, uh, and I think a significant amount of it was, was the fact that I'm Asian American and, you know, like people weren't accustomed to having an Asian, uh, person, trying to raise their hand and saying like, Hey, I've got like, uh, uh, I've got the solutions or I like, I think I know where we need to go. Um, so, so that was a frustration of mine. Um, but it, it's been invigorating that, you know, the, this movement has been growing really ever, like even after I suspended my campaign, like I feel like our, uh, energy is higher now than it was even like when I was campaigning. Man, I don't want to over inundate you with questions, but it's um, you know, we this is our first time really talking, and and, and sometimes I, I know what a lot of my friends and I talk about is that look, I am independent, and you know, Charlemagne is a, is a friend of mine. Karen Kenny, who kind of works with us both, is our light, and we had conversations all the time about you know the Democratic Party and how they've been able to utilize the black vote in a lot of ways. You know, I think a lot of black people felt let down. Um, is is there a chance for a third party that potentially could be established one day? Ay, and maybe is there a way, like, how would you filter out having better candidates? I'm not saying that our candidates that we have, uh, Joe Biden, is lacking. That's a whole other conversation um, that we can, I'm not sure we can even get into that. But it is is that feasible? 
So the mechanics of a third party are very, very difficult, Jay. Uh, if you look at it, like if someone ran as an independent, I actually talked to Mark Cuban about this because he was looking at a presidential run. Um, and he's a smart guy, a savvy guy, and he dug in and found the same thing I did about the mechanics is like uh, running right now as a third party is a great way to help someone else win. Uh, it's not hmm. going to result in your victory. Uh, and that's the reality right now that I think we need to change because I, I think the two party duopoly is destroying us in some ways. Uh, I, I think there are many people who do not feel like either party speaks for them. Right now, people who identify as independents, which I think you may I, I identify as, outnumber either uh, Democrats or Republicans uh, by the numbers. <laughs> but there isn't a party for you. So you're just like, all right, I guess I'm going to choose um, one of these two. And so the big reform that would help us advance politically is ranked choice voting where if you could just say, look, here are a few people I like. I like Yang first and then, uh, you know, Joe second and then uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren third or whatever the, the list is. Um, and then people wouldn't feel like they were forced to vote for a particular person. People wouldn't feel like they were ever going to waste their vote. Um, and then you could have people's true preferences get laid out and it would make politicians much more responsive and politics much more dynamic because you'd wind up with then with like a more parliamentary system where you'd have splinter parties that then had like a, a degree of support. Um, so if you had ranked choice voting, then you could potentially have more parties. But the way it's set up right now with just this uh, one vote, use it or lose it, or not, it's like, it's, it's called like um, first to the post, like first to 51% is the technical term for uh, our current voting system. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, very hard for an independent party right now. Uh, and you know, that's just the way our system set up, which, which is not deliberate. Like the constitution has zero language about, oh, they're gonna be two political parties. Like, and, and there were points in the past where there were multiple political parties. Like there were major parties that now don't even exist. Like the Whigs, you know, no, no one even like fucking thinks about the, the Whigs, but if you, <laughs> if you like rewound, like that was like a big deal. So. Uh, so that there, there's a need for dynamism in our political system, uh, but it's unclear where that comes from. Um, and there are a lot of people like you um, and maybe Charlemagne and maybe others who are looking up saying like, we need like a better system than this. Like I, I went through the democratic nomination process and like on one level, I really appreciated the fact that, you know, I, I was included in stuff, uh, you know, like, uh, um, and like had in some ways like a you know like a, a fair shot um but there were other times where it was like man like this process is really not designed for someone to come in from outside um the the fear jay is that dc right now is on a 30-year lag time behind the rest of the country uh and we don't have 30 years to wait uh and and that's just, just the situation we're in where if someone like me wanted to try and uh, make changes in the Democratic Party, it, it would take a significant amount of time. Um, and the question is whether we have that much time. I mean, yeah, I, that is the question. So looking at the reality of the situation, I mean, is is Joe Biden going to have a, a black woman with him to be the vice president of the United States? Is that the most suitable? Is that Camelo Harris? Is you know who do you think is the most suitable candidate for that? If you ask me, is Joe going to have uh, a black woman running mate? I would guess that yes, he will. Uh, and then there are several top candidates uh, 
for that. Um, Kamala, I know, um, and, and consider her a friend. I don't know some of the other people that are in the running, but I think that's what you'll see. And, and mm. I, I believe that uh, Joe is going to win. Uh, I think that Trump is uh, alienating a lot of people that were, you know, like that, that voted for him and were like, you know, pretty much they were justifying their continued support for him uh, based upon uh, their 401k stock market and jobs. They were like, oh, he's doing a great job with the economy. Um, and that argument's not going to work for many, many people this time because, you know, they're just going to look around their town and be like, you know, like the, like the, like the bar is half empty, the, you know, like the um, rental car agencies, like half occupied, like, you know, it's not a good look for him. Well, it, it's interesting because every morning you wake up, you watch a lot of shows and, you know, I watch everything from, from MSNBC to Fox to, you know, uh, I, I listen to a ton of different networks to try to get alternate opinions so I can come to my own assessment. But it's like, you know, on one end, you hear every morning like this daunting thing, like, you know, unemployment, unemployment and numbers are astronomical. And then on another, you hear, well, the stock market is up, right? Even though the, the two don't really correlate. Like, how do you, is the stock market being up? Is that sustainable? Does that does that help Donald Trump better because the economy is in that place? Yeah, I mean, it's marginally helpful for, for Donald Trump because people at least feel like their stock portfolios are going up. Um, but right now, the problem is that stock prices and unemployment now have no relationship at all. Like if you fire a lot of people, your stock price probably goes up because they're like, oh, good, you got rid of people. So um, the the issue is whether more people own stock or have jobs. And it's many, many, many more people have jobs than own stock. So like the, the fact that the employment picture is really bleak is going to impact a lot of people very, very harshly and negatively. And then there's going to be a relatively small percentage of Americans who are just staring at the stock price and their jobs um, are fine. And, you know, that that describes you and me, obviously, um, uh, but it, it does not describe the majority of Americans. Uh, about half of Americans own no stock, so you know they don't care about stock market prices. Uh, and the, the top 20% of Americans own 92% of the stock portfolio. Um, so, so for better or for worse, Jay, the people that you hang out with that own a lot of stock are in the top 20% of the U.S. population, um, and, and <laughs> which is not shocking because, you know, like you are who you are and like, you know, you hang out with people who work at uh, ESPN or, or athletes or whatnot. It's like, I mean, obviously they have like a freaking, you know, financial like, uh, you know, like team. I am not like, there. I am not there. Yeah. I, I witnessed that from afar. I'm like, oh, you're making how much a year? Interesting. Okay. I'm not there. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the stock market prices and jobs are heading in opposite directions, and uh, the jobs are going to hurt more people than than the stock market uh, prices are going to help. So, if we're having a balance sheet issue, how, how come you don't see the government do things like uh, legalize marijuana or legalize gambling in order to capitalize on that tax revenue? They really should. Or why is it? Yeah, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I, I think that. For marijuana, it's like residual cultural issues and probably racism. Uh, and it's like, uh, that's the only explanation I can see. Um, gambling is a, a different issue. There are some corporate interests in gambling who uh, like the current state of affairs um, uh, where, you know, they, like they profit from having gambling uh, be legal only in like very expensive licenses. Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, though though be, I'm for uh, legalizing online poker, that's for sure. Like that makes no sense. Um, where you know it's because like then right now you can still gamble. You just have to gamble through some weird offshore site, um, and that's lost tax revenue. It's less safe for people. Uh, you know, it's like not as much transparency around the odds. Like you don't know if they're cheating you. So, uh, so that one we should do for sure. Are you a poker player? Uh, I am. I mean, I know how to play. I'm, I'm not like someone who's <laughs> sitting there, like, you know, m- making the magic. I have friends who are very high level poker players. Like, uh, um, I don't know, you know, like Daniel, uh, Negranu, uh, he was like a Yang gang, um, had a, heard him, had yeah. an event for me in Vegas, which I appreciate. Um, yeah, the, there's a, so yeah, like, I, I mean, I understand it, but, um, like, uh, a lot of friends who are really into it though. There, there's like this, this, this like overlap, I'm sure between like sports and betters and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, like, like some, you should have seen how many times when I was in college, my friends would be like, you know what the spread is tonight? I'm like, what? Stop. No, I don't want to. Why would you tell that to me? I'm around a lot of degenerates in that way, but they're my boys. So that's what it is. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Well, well, one of the things I admire so much about you, Jay, is that you were like the highest level athlete um, in high school, college, number two overall pick, uh, you know, and then you went through like a ton of adversity and have now like reinvented yourself, um, you know, as like a, a TV personality, commentator, business person um, and everything else. And like, I, I know a lot of uh, former athletes and it's really, really hard uh, for many athletes to find like that next uh, chapter or like the next set of things that they do. Um, so the fact that you've succeeded at such a high level already and you have like so much ahead of you, uh, I mean, like you're a tremendous role model. Oh, thank you, man. And uh, I really appreciate you allowing, you know, me to ask you those questions. I, I feel so much more informed going back into the world. And uh, it's, um, you know, for me personally, AY, it's like, you know, seeing you on your journey, I find a lot of similarities, right? It's, you know, you going through, and I just want to give credence to to you here and for people listening, you know, to do what you're doing, it takes a lot of courage, right? It takes a lot of courage. And I've always felt that you spoke, when you spoke, it came from a place like, this is how I feel. And I'm sure there are a lot of moments that, you know, due to the lane in which you were running, um, that you had to think through a lot of different obstacles and challenges about maybe what the system wanted you to do as opposed to what you wanted to do. And I'm sure that was difficult and navigate to, uh, difficult to navigate, but 
ultimately, man, like you are you are courageous for stepping yourself out there and you know your family and speaking out for what you believe in and that that you know from somebody who's had to learn how to do that in front of the public like i had to find out i think the reason why i am the way i am today is that i had to find out who i was as a human being in front of the camera and i had to recognize that that is an ongoing process and I, sometimes you might get lost in debates or things and i'm quick to tell people if i was wrong i'm quick to tell people what i've learned because i I want you to enjoy this ride with me because you're on the same journey. You know, you today, it's completely different, I'm sure, than you two years ago. Um, and if we're lucky enough to be here, man, we'll be remiss if we didn't pay attention to the things that are happening along the way. So I commend you for that, brother. I really do. Thank you, Jay. Certainly, it's all about discovering our own humanity, you know, and, and in our case, we're doing it in front of a lot of people, um, you know, which is its own process. Uh, but we have to humanize this country. We have to humanize our economy. We have to humanize certainly the way police interact with um, us and particularly people of color. Um, like that, that's really the challenge in front of us. And like you and I have succeeded in a way that like it's elevated you into this like machinery. And so now you like see the machinery and you're like, oh my gosh, like look at all this stuff. Um, and, and then you're exactly. like, how am I gonna humanize this? <laughs> like, like this is actually <laughs> quite difficult to humanize. <laughs> Um, but 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 that is the project of this era, um, and you're going to be a big part of that. I hope to be a big part of that. Uh, but people need us because, like the, the, like we're getting ground up. You know, it's like like humanity is losing, um, and this set of protests to me is like a like a cry of anguish and grief and anger and passion of humanity. It's like you know, like one of us was killed in front of uh, our eyes. Like uh, you know. Our, our leaders are not really listening to us and responding to us. Um, like we are going to make our voices heard. And I, I know that's going to be uh, your job and my job in different ways over the, the days and years to come. Well, I look forward to our relationship building, man. I really do. And, you know, maybe, um, you know, once we continue to evolve as a country, when we find ourselves in a little bit better of a place or hopefully the numbers go down, uh, I know there's been a lot of protests out there. That's also something for people to pay very close attention to with these spikes in different parts of the country. Um, but if we can pull through, I would love to meet up with you, man. Go see a, get you down to become a Brooklyn Nets fan. Uh, we need some more fans in Brooklyn. Uh, now, what is your, what is your relationship you with them? Because I literally was like just talking to um, some of the, the Nets team. I know you obviously live there. And so you're a fan. You probably are friends with, I know you're friends with KD and some of the other players too. So like, are, are you like hardcore Brooklyn Nets? Well, um, I was a hardcore New Jersey Nets guy. Yes, uh, that's know, true. Meadowlands, yes, throwback. And it just so happened that they moved to Brooklyn. And you know, my wife and I were in Brooklyn, too. So it kind of feels just very close to my heart. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to be a Knicks fan these days. Hard oh, to be dude, a Knicks fan. Dude, I divorced the Knicks in 2014. Yeah. Um, and then there was a period when I was, like, you know, looking for a team um, and, <laughs> and, then, and then, uh, we scooped you up. We took you on a date and we scooped you up. Yeah. And then like, I was trying to, I got to admit the first time there is a little bit like, I mean, I've never been divorced. Thank God in real life. But like, like the, the first time I was trying to like try a new team on, it was really freaking weird because like I was used to the garden. I was used to like the, um, the court and the play by play and like everything. Um, and so hanging out in Barclays at first, I was like, well, this is cool. Like I get used to this and like, but it was like, it was hard. 
Um, but 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 <laughs> like but but now you know I'm a Nets fan and uh, like been enjoying it and you know it's helped that the team's been good and interesting and um, well coached uh, you know and and well managed uh, and now I'm actually friends with some of the owners so like when when I come to the game um, like I, I just did you know Joe that all and, in- Joe Sai and Clara are great they're great yeah they're they're great and uh, they're great like donated my, you know PPE and money. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if you saw this, Jay, but like, remember that all in challenge thing? It's like, I gave away uh courtside, um, Nets tickets, uh, with, with me. Um, so maybe you'll be there for that too. Maybe we'll do some kind of crazy joint, like, uh, you know, uh, I'll do it with you. Night. I'll do it. Uh, Cause uh, we have floor seats too. So I'll do it with you. We'll, we'll, we'll do yeah, one we'll game do it, together. It'll and be I'll bring somebody party. else too. That'll be so much fun. Done. So that, that's a date, uh, you know, uh, that's something for us to look forward to after all of this, um, the smoke clears. Yeah, man. Well, I really appreciate you giving me the time, AY. And I'm glad you've allowed me to give you the nickname AY, too. That's pretty I love it. Again, man, vastly superior to a lot of the the stuff I've been called. (laughs) I'm just saying, one day, if you ever get to the White House, my daughter's going to be like, AY. I'm like, that's right. The president has a nickname. That is right. And your dad gave it to me. Um, All the best to you and the family. And uh, we'll catch up soon in person, man. I'll send you some of the stuff, too, because like I can tell you're into it. All right, brother. Stay safe. And thank you for all the informative stuff that you've given me, man. I will definitely check out Campaign Zero for sure. Thanks, Jay. All the best, man. Take care.